Hey, Cody, just text me if uh, everything looks right. Daniel's joining me on this thing. Awesome. Thank you, buddy. Hey, welcome. Uh, if you're signing on or in the process of signing on, or if you're listening to this later in the week, you're in the right place. We're going to have about 10 minutes or so, eight minutes at this point before we begin. And um, I want to look, welcome you to Crosspoint Fellowship. This is a virtual uh, worship time that we have as we spend some time enjoying uh, a sermon together and uh, connecting to one meal of God's word. So you're in the right place. If you're here, uh, if you're joining us right now or are joining us later this week, we'll get started in about seven minutes. Once I, uh, once we get started, can you turn off the Bluetooth? The speaker? Yeah, just turn off yeah. the Bluetooth. Is it all? If someone calls, it'll ring. Even though I have all the everything muted, it'll still ring. Yeah. Okay. What you do for the 10 minutes, just sit. And you're in there too. So you? Look, you got to be very attentive. Can't fall asleep. Shoot, there goes my plans. Just got a nap. It's going to take a nice hour and a half. You know? We've got eight people on right now. You're in the right place if you're signing on to Cross Mountain Fellowship. We've got Daniel joining me this morning. And um, we're going to get started here in about six minutes. If you're dialing in uh, or joining in later in the week, and this is pre-recorded, uh, we have about six minutes, ten minutes total before we get started. So if you want to just fast forward at the bottom of the screen there, you can fast forward to the beginning of the, the uh, official time together. But this is just time to get folks uh, a few minutes to, to join in. You're getting good at this, Dad. What? You're getting good at this. You're on right now. You know, you're being recorded. I am. <laughs> I'm aware of this. You can see people that are joining in in that upper left-hand corner. But you can't see who they are. No, you can't see who they are. We're going to be starting in about four minutes or so. Uh, thank you for joining in this morning. If I see folks that are, are getting uh, uh, connected uh, as we speak, and uh, we're glad that you're here and joining us. Um, um, you're at Crosspoint Fellowship, in case you're wondering what you've dialed into. Uh, this is our virtual time of uh, worship together through enjoying and sharing um, in the same meal of the word to a sermon. I've got Daniel joining me this morning. 
and uh, we'll get started here in about four minutes or so. Thanks for joining. I didn't remember you had this in here. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're about one minute before we start. Uh, we are uh, this Crosspoint Fellowship. In case you're wondering who we are, uh, if you're a regular uh, family, church family member, uh, it's good to join you this morning virtually. Uh, if you're uh, visiting with us, we're glad that you're here, and uh, we hope that you are ministered to in less than the time that we spend the Word. We'll get started here in about a minute or so. Welcome. This is Crosspoint Fellowship Online. Uh, we are virtual uh, for the time being, have been for the last couple of Sundays. We um, are a people of God in, in, in Greenville, uh, Texas, that uh, are uh, sadly sort of disconnected right now in various homes. 
we're doing the best that we can to manage our, our, our worship and to continue to worship and flourish in this season. So if you're joining us this morning for virtual uh, worship and to join us in time of sharing a meal of God's word, I want to welcome you. If you are uh, visiting, maybe this is uh, your first time to hear uh, at least the, the preaching of the word from Cross Point. We're glad that you joined us. This is my lad, Daniel, right here. He's joining me this morning. Uh, in the past um, couple of weeks doing this, I've, I've come up to the building by myself and I've left by myself. I've been here by the building, by my, in the building by myself, and it's just been unnerving. Uh, I'm, I feel like I'm talking to an inanimate object and I'm actually looking at a, a, an image, a video of myself right now. So uh, sadly, I can't see you. I can't peer into your homes to see if you're paying attention. I can't uh, interact in any sort of animated response because I can't really see what you're doing there. So having Daniel join me this morning is a treat. He's going to do our Lent reading here in a moment. And I think probably in the coming weeks, I'll probably worship with my family, uh, either from home as I share the message or maybe have them join me in my office here. Uh, that may be untenable, but we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, I would like to, if I could, uh, begin in prayer. Um, we are going to, each week we pray for a people group um, of the top 100 least reached peoples in the world from the Joshua Project. Uh, we will also pray for a local church. We do that every single week when we gather, uh, praying that God would bless them and, and grow them, that he would multiply them and give them all the great problems of uh, parking problems and space issues and uh, more people that want to be discipled and are able to disciple. Those are those are pro uh, problems that we all treasure and that we pray for in our fellow churches. Uh, we also want to pray for the sick and the suffering and uh, those who are hurting in our world and community and country. So uh, join me if you would in prayer. God, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have together. We're thankful that through technology that you can connect us and you do connect us and that Ultimately, we're connected in one spirit and one savior and one Lord, one cross, one especially vacant tomb, one uh, reigning and ruling king who is seated at your right hand. Lord, we're thankful that those those ultimate realities unite us and that this morning we get to connect to something uh, electronic and, and virtual to help us connect over a shared meal uh, through your word. Lord, we, I pray that you would bless this time as we gather uh, that we would be good stewards with it. I pray for folks as they worship in their homes, uh, that you would give uh, folks just a, a, a special attentiveness on this special Sunday before Easter, uh, Lord, that we would be especially engaged in this terrible and wonderful story of Christ's uh, passion and his resurrection, Lord. I just pray that you would bless this time, uh, that you would nourish us through this time, uh, that you would um, advance us or advance the kingdom, grow the kingdom, through a people who are uh, caught up in the greatness of Christ. And this time would equip for that. Lord, also we want to pray for a people group this morning. I want to pray for the Japanese people group uh, of Japan, uh, Lord, of 123 million people, 1.23% uh, of which are Christian. 123 million people. Lord, we are thankful that we have the opportunity to lift up a massive, massive need to you and know that you are completely capable of drawing people groups to you. Lord, we pray for the, the millions and millions and millions of people in Japan that don't know you, uh, Lord, that you would stir in the Japanese people a hunger, a desire to know you, um, an, a, an itch for answers to know their creator. Lord, I pray that they would see the bankruptcy in man-made religions, that they would see the greatness of the, uh, or the, the, that that uh, 
itch would be coupled with people going to the far corners and sharing the good news of Christ. Lord, I pray that there would be folks here that would be just really uncomfortable with staying here and they couldn't uh, couldn't help but go because they want to take the, uh, the good seed of the kingdom to the far corners. Lord, we pray that you would do that mighty work. Lord, also want to pray for another church in our community. Pray for Bull Creek Cowboy Church in Lono. We'll pray for Jeff Jackson and the, the teaching pastor. And just pray for the rest of the pastors and, and staff there and, and leadership and deacons. Lord, we pray that you would bless Bull Creek Cowboy Church in this season of um, disconnection as we are worshiping in homes and worshiping in, in smaller settings. Lord, that even in this season that they would flourish. Lord, we pray that you would, would bless um, the uh, pastors as they as they minister to their people through uh, me, mediums like Zoom or whatever features uh, they're able to use, that there would be a Holy Spirit that would bind them, that would grow them stronger in this season. And then on the other end of this season, uh, that hopefully in soon, that they'll be uh, uh, healthier, that they will love uh, gathering with God's people even more, uh, that they'll be more uh, captivated and in awe of the greatness of Christ and the gospel. And Lord, we just pray that you would bless them with all great problems of space issues and discipleship issues. Uh, Lord, uh, lastly, I want to pray for those who want to pray for those who are sick and who are um, in need of just special care and attention. And want to continue to pray for um, the Daniels family and pray for Trevor and pray that he is uh, enjoying uh, just a, a really, really wonderful time at home. Uh, that you are sustaining him through treatment, that you are sustaining his family through treatment. And pray for Everett Cummings and for uh, his family. And thankful that, that he has uh, been raised, born and raised into a Christ-adoring home. And we pray that you would sustain and bless them. We pray for others who may be sick and, and ailing or recovering. We pray for those who might need care right now and are having a hard time uh, dealing with just routine care because of the uh, coronavirus Lord, we pray that you would sustain them and give them endurance. We pray for those who are uh, are dealing with the virus, who either have it or have had it or have loved ones who have the virus. Lord, we just pray that in these next couple of weeks that are apparently going to be uh, quite difficult, that you would uh, just put on display the, the confidence that we can have, eternal confidence that we can have in the person and work of Christ and the good news of Christ crucified and risen. We pray that the people of God uh, will have good news to bring uh, to bear in those opportunities as we talk with others who might be fearful or anxious or uh, concerned over the uh, the spread of the virus and the effects of the virus. Lord, we, we're thankful that, that you weren't caught off guard by this, uh, but that you are in complete control and that you have a glory plan here. Pray that we would be attentive to that. Lord, we are turn, turning this time of worship over to you and asking you to be great and glorified. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel is going to share our Lent reading this morning from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us, of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that led that is led to the slaughter, like sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grief with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the right one, righteous one, my servant, make my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with, with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and, made, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Daniel. Daniel is extinguishing the sixth candle of the seven, and we will extinguish the last candle um, this Friday at 3 p.m. I invite you to join us uh, if you're able or if you can make yourself able to get online on this same link. Uh, we will have a time of short time of worship, uh, reading the passion narrative and uh, extinguishing this last candle at 3 p.m. this Friday. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this uh, Lent season, thankful that we have, as a people, had an opportunity to be reminded each week of the terrible price paid uh, for our sin, Lord, and the wonderful Savior that we have in Christ. Lord, we uh, are thankful that um, we have these chan uh, this chance to take these few moments each week to remember the cost and to enjoy our Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, as a result of the time that we spend considering this terrible price pay that we would adore Christ more. Lord, I pray that we would be more satisfied with Christ. That this preparation for Easter and the celebration uh, of season and preparation for Easter this year would be something that would condition us to be more and more satisfied with a great Savior. We're praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Mark chapters 14 and 15 today, and uh, we have in the last few months begun sort of a routine of standing for the reading of God's word. If you are in homes and you had even in the last couple of weeks have been doing that, uh, you're welcome to do that. But we're going to be covering uh, really about a chapter's worth of passage uh, overlapping the, uh, the last third or so 
last half to third of chapter 14 and the first portion of chapters 15 or chapter 15. So uh, if you stand, you're welcome to do that, but it might be a little bit clunky because I'm going to share some passages and share some explanation and then continue on in the story with some more explanation and then continue on in the story. So it's going to be a little bit unique this morning. I don't have any satellites to go to. Uh, we're going to be only in chapters 14 and 15, beginning in verse 43 of chapter 14 and ending in chapter 15, um, verse 32. So it's a sizable chunk. So it's a unique approach this morning in that I'm not in great detail going to end. Just walk through this story and just climb into some of the details that aren't there in, in black and white, uh, that are sort of behind the text, that will add some, um, I think, some potency and some meaning to this story for us. Beginning in uh, chapter 14, verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber? A little note for you to make there. If you, if you uh, underline in your Bible, margins, uh, this would be a great place to put a little asterisk and a note means insurrectionist, okay, a rebel. That's a synonym, um, somewhat of a synonym, insurrectionist. And if you can't spell that, then maybe look it up. Maybe just put an asterisk just so you can come back to it. Have you come out as against a robber slash insurrectionist with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This last winter uh, in December, ending in November, uh, on through December, we had a season of Advent. And we were in the book of Zechariah for the Advent season. And there was a passage, a prophetic passage in the book of Zechariah about the, the an occasion where the, the shepherd is struck. You strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's specifically about what's happening in this moment in Gethsemane. Jesus has been up to this point, been in the presence of his followers every single moment, nearly, at least from what we see from the passage, except for moments where he, he slipped off for a time of prayer. He's been surrounded by his followers for his entire ministry until this very moment. And the desertion here at this point is so profound that this man, possibly John Mark, some people believe this is the writer of the, the gospel itself of Mark, possibly John Mark. He would have been an affluent young man coming from Jerusalem, would have had the means to have linen undies, which is apparently what he's wearing at that time. And the desertion is so profound that this man left his own clothing to flee and get away from Jesus at this night, on this moment. Now, at this point in the story, there's a course change. Okay, if you haven't noticed it already, there's a significant course change. Up to this point, 
He's been directing and guiding his ministry. Let's just use this thought. Let's we'll, we'll come back to this thought later. He's had all the verbs. He's been guiding his ministry. He's had the initiative up to this point in this story on this night at this arrest. And verse 41, just before where we began this morning, it says, he said, um, it is enough. You might remember that passage from last week. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is the moment where he is turned over into the hands of sinners. He's been with his followers and he's had the initiative. He's had all the verbs. And now he's been turned over into the hands of sinners. And now at this point, he's going to be led away to a middle of the night trial of sorts. And I would kind of use air quotes, but not quite because it's still follow those types of proceedings. A, a pseudo trial in the middle of the night at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 53 continues. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now, those three groups are the three groups that made up the 70 person council of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was led at this point in time by the high priest, a man named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas apparently was pretty able, pretty well thought of. Uh, apparently he was a good leader um, or at least one who could influence people. The typical tenure for high priest was about four years. Caiaphas was the high priest for 19 years. So this guy was apparently pretty good at what he did. But he's the high priest and he's leading this 70-person council called the Sanhedrin that's made up of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. The chief priests were the former high priests. So that's a really small group. If they serve four years, you could almost think of them being like former presidents of the United States. We still have a few of those that are living. And if they sat on some sort of council, that would be a good image of what's going on here. We've got the chief priests who are the former high priests. We've got Caiaphas, the current high priest. We've got the elders. The elders are representatives of the most influential families in Jerusalem, probably the rich landowners in the area. These two groups, the um, chief priests and the elders, had, San, uh, had uh, Sadducean leanings. Now, the last group were the scribes, and the scribes are the lawyers drawn from middle, middle class who tended to be the Pharisees. Okay, now 70 people was what made up this council. And Mark makes the point to say all were there, but it was probably over the course of the night that they populated and filled out and showed up to fill out this full council or at least a quorum of a council at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. They would have required 23 people to make a binding decision. Uh, and by 6 a.m., they, in fact, made a binding decision. So let's see what unfolded here. In verse 55. We're going to leave Peter out of our story tonight. Peter is a he's a great um, story, a, a wonderful man to consider in this story. But we're going to focus just primarily and exclusively on Christ at this point. Verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. Now, this trial I mentioned is sort of a pseudo trial. We can almost put air quotes around it. It was more trial than not. And it was put together in a way that was hasty in the middle of the night, somewhere between probably uh, midnight and 6 a.m. This whole thing unfolded. 
And yet it still followed some proceedings that suggested that it was very much a trial. They followed a prescribed structure and protocol beginning with the presentation of evidence. And something else that's interesting about the evidence is if it had between witnesses, if there was any disparity, even in the smallest detail, it was dismissed. And that became quite problematic. There's probably plenty to say about it. And I'll show you some of those things here in a moment. But the testimonies disagreed. So they were deemed false. And it says that they found none in regards to uh, grounds to put him to death. So in verse 27, we continue. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, in regards to talking about the destruction of the temple or the rebuilding of the temple, that it's still considered false testimony because he didn't actually say that. He actually said specifically in the book of John, it gives the, the exact wording for what he said. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it. He said, he actually said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. So the testimony didn't agree at this point, and it was considered to be false testimony. But even in regards to this, these accusations, they began to find some footing for you hear it later in the next chapter. We're going to look at here in a moment. You hear it from the jeers in the jeers from the crowd as he's hanging on the cross. This accusation that he said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But at this point in the trial, there's still no presentation of something that would warrant his death. And that's frustrating Caiaphas. In fact, Caiaphas is done with all these other testimonies and all the other evidence. And just imagine at this point in trial, this guy who is serving as sort of the, the, the chief judge comes around the bench and becomes the lawyer doing the interrogating. He's frustrated with proceedings. It's the middle of the night and he desperately wants to do this guy in. So let's see what happens. In verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, here's the key question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. He said more than that, but the first two words he started with is, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? We've cracked him. We've broken him. You've heard his blasphemy is what he called it. What is your decision, counsel? And they all, however many had showed up at that point, it would have been at least 23 to make it a binding decision. They all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This trial in the home of Caiaphas, this middle of the night trial, this hasty trial that's put together is the climax of the book of Mark. It is the centerpiece and climax 
of the book of Mark in regards to the Messiahship of Christ. And in particular, verses 61 and 62, where Caiaphas asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He, in, he answered at first with the two words that identify himself as a deity. The words that he used all over uh, the gospels, identifying himself as the son of God. He said before Abraham was, I am. I am or the, is, is the name that when Moses asked God, God, who am I supposed to say sent me to lead the Israelites out of Egypt? You tell them that I am sent you. So this statement of deity was profound, but that's not all he said. Ultimately, what he said is I am and the day will come when you who are now seated in power as the council, the Sanhedrin will see the son of man enthroned at the Father's right hand, with all power and all majesty, seated as your judge. And it's a profound response. What's interesting at this point in the book of Mark is the messianic secret is out. The book of Mark especially develops the messianic secret where Jesus heals someone or he ministers to someone and then he tells them, don't tell anybody what I just did. He seems to be guiding and, and, and uh, navigating this path to the cross through this three-year ministry where he doesn't want it to happen too soon in the wrong circumstances. So he's guiding his way through this cross. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And here at this moment, he says, I am. Okay, I see our connection is unstable. So we'll give this just a second because I don't want you to miss this. I hope this is getting through. The messianic secret is out, and he says, I am the Messiah. Now's the time to make it plain. Now's the time to let, let everybody know who I am. I don't have to, it doesn't have to be a secret anymore. Over the course of his trial, some of the, some of the accusations that must have come up, he claimed to forgive sins. We know that. He'd heal somebody, and so your sins are forgiven. He mixed with sinners. He ate with them and hung out with them. Oh. He wasn't militant about fasting, apparently. He appeared to be lax in regards to the Sabbath, like he actually would heal somebody on the Sabbath. What a, what a terrible thing. And just on the basis of those things, they were ready to destroy him by chapter three. And I mean, the word is actually in verbatim in chapter three, verse six, destroy him just on the basis of those things. Add to this, he rode a donkey's colt into Jerusalem like a boss. Everybody else is walking. He rides into Jerusalem, a messianic message with a little crowd. We don't know. It may have been quite a crowd of Galileans cheering for him as the Messiah. And then to top it off, all off, the next day, he cleared the temple. He cleared the temple. He stepped into the epicenter and cleared the temple. He was for sure a troublemaker. And he also identified, added this, he identified the scribes as hypocritical parasites and then later predicted the destruction of the temple as we just considered. He really pushed some buttons. But what since the death penalty? His response to question, are you the Messiah? When he said he was the Christ, the Messiah, 
they're trying to figure out I'm not wearing enough clothes to rip. Whose clothes can we rip up here? I'm so hacked. I've lost my mind over this. And you have to ask the question, why such a reaction? I mean, weren't they expecting a Messiah? They've been pouring over the scriptures. They've been pouring over the prophecies. They should have been looking for the Messiah. And I think some were. Maybe they all were in some way. But they were looking for a very different Messiah. And Jesus wasn't the right kind of Messiah. He was from Galilee, after all. A Nazarene? Man, are you kidding me? This guy's a nobody from nowhere. And hours earlier, he'd been taken and bound? That's not the kind of Messiah they're looking for. He's abandoned by his followers. One of them ran away naked? Man, that doesn't sound like the Messiah they're looking for. He's delivered then helpless into the hands of his foes? That's not the Messiah they're looking for. They're looking for a Messiah that would bear the sword against Rome and restore Israel's independence. Now, that's the kind of Messiah they are looking for. They're also looking for a Messiah that would honor their respectable positions as former high priests, as current high priests, as elders of the best and brightest and richest families and the learned scribes. They were looking for one that was partial. They, was look, they were looking for one that would give extra credit for being a good citizen and a good Jew. They were looking for a very different Jesus than the one that they had in front of them. So they figured this one has to be a blasphemer. By 6 a.m., they had a quorum and they had a decision that he must die. Stoning was the prescribed method of capital punishment for blasphemy, but a cross would do. Let's continue in chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. There's a change of venue here. He goes from the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the court, the courtyard of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor of the Judean province of Rome, a Roman, by the way, Pontius Pilate. This is about 6 a.m. in the morning that this goes down. Up to this point in the story and in the middle of the, in the, middle of the night trial, that whole thing, that whole trial in Caiaphas, in, in Caiaphas, the high priest's home, was about his messiahship. Well, here's where things change to his identity as king. They couldn't kill him as a problem of identifying him as a claiming to be a messiah. They couldn't kill him for being a blasphemer. The Jews didn't have that opportunity. They didn't bear the sword anymore because they were a province of Rome. Rome were the only ones that could administer capital punishment, and they were jealous about that right and privilege. So they came before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the Roman governor of that province, who didn't care two cents about blasphemy. Blasphemy, what? He didn't know anything about the Jewish uh, faith and religion. He didn't care, in fact. Didn't, he despised the Jewish faith. So they had to come up with a different charge. So they took this 
charge of blasphemy of claiming to be the Messiah. And they secularized it. They Gentileized it. And they changed it to him claiming to be a king of the Jews. That's like a translation from Messiah to king. Let's make this thing fit the context here. We're going to a new court where they're the only ones that can kill him. We want him dead. So we have to secularize this charge and make it fit. So what they claimed him uh, claimed him to be is uh, or charged him with is high treason against Rome as the king of the Jews. Now that would get Pilate's attention. That would get Rome's attention. Someone claiming to be king and living in a province of Rome. This new charge, get this, this new charge of Jesus as king was like calling Jesus, Jesus, the leader of the resistance. Let that hit you from that. Calling him, identifying him as king of the Jews or claiming to be king of the Jews would be like saying, Jesus, leader of the resistance. It just doesn't seem to fit together, does it? Jesus, leader of the resistance. It's laughable, in fact, because he's the leader of the unresistance. I mean, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We know uh, the message of turning the other cheek and not resisting those, praying for your enemy. I mean, it, that doesn't sound like a resistance to me. It's ironic. Let's consider this. It's ironic that he was labeled as a blasphemer by the Sanhedrin because he wasn't what they were looking for in a Messiah. And they turned right around moments later and called him what he actually wasn't. They called him what they wanted him to actually be, the leader of a resistance. Man, I, just consider for a moment, these are the best and brightest of Israel. These 70 are the best and brightest of Israel. Man, what a sad statement and commentary of the condition of Israel. These guys did what was expedient to get rid of them. Whatever it took, let's call them whatever we have to call them. Let's label it whatever we have to label it, whatever it takes. Let's get rid of this guy. So in verse 6, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, one who had committed murder in the interaction, there was a man called Barabbas. The book of Matthew tells us his name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Now, this is the Jesus that the Jews wanted. This is the Jesus that was more like what they had in mind, probably what the council would have wanted, although they wouldn't have been uh, brave enough to admit it. He was, in fact, an insurrectionist. It says there in verse, six, verse 7, he is the leader of resistance. If they want to find a Jesus who's a leader of resistance, now this guy is the guy. It's highly likely that the two men that were crucified on both sides of Christ, either side of Christ, were also insurrectionists and in league and buddies with Barabbas. They too were called robbers. Remember, which that word also means insurrectionists. That's the same word that Jesus used when he's arrested in the garden. Have y'all come out as against an insurrectionist? Have you come out as against a guy who's a leader of a resistance? You got the wrong Jesus. Ironically, interestingly, and I think it's no coincidence at all. It's on purpose that this is the option that they have. Jesus, Barabbas. This was the kind of man that the Jews wanted. This guy. This guy was a freedom fighter. This guy was a patriot. This guy had a following too. And let me tell you something. 
it scares me how much I, I think I would like him. This guy is not going to be a pushover with Rome. This guy was apparently a murderer. He would murder for the cause. Man, this guy sounds like a guy that I would actually like. And he had a following too. And a following that showed up in that courtyard. Give us the Jesus that will stand up for us. Give us the Jesus that won't be a pushover. Jesus Barabbas is the one that we want. It scares me to consider how much I would have liked this guy. But for God's grace and mercy. You know, we don't know Barabbas' fate. I thought over the years as I've considered him, I, I had a sermon years ago about Barabbas, the two, the two Jesuses. And I thought, man, I would love to know that this Barabbas came full circle and trusted the Christ who'd taken his place, the Jesus that had taken his place. We don't know that that's true. We don't know that that happened or not. I'm actually reading a book um, on Christie's Kindle. I don't have a, a red Kindle. That'd be kind of weird. Um, but I'm actually reading my first book on a Kindle. The book is actually The Shadow of the Galilean. It's, and it's historical fiction. If you're like me and you don't like reading history books, you can read historical fiction and learn a lot of really good stuff about history. So it's called The Shadow of the Galilean. I think it was written in the late 80s. And it's, it's really good. Uh, later on in the book, there's a guy that's actually looking for Barabbas. He wants to follow Barabbas, is sort of the central figure in the book. But over the course of trying to find Barabbas, he finds Jesus of Nazareth. And he loves and follows Jesus of Nazareth. And there's a point in the book where Barabbas sends this guy a letter after Christ is crucified. His name is Andreas. Barabbas to Andreas, Shalom. Burn this letter as soon as you have read it, for no one must find it on you. No one is to know what is in it. I'm writing above all to thank you. I've heard how much you did for me. I barely escaped death. The price was high. Another died in my place. Two of my friends were crucified with him. Since then, I've been asking myself, why the other? Why Jesus? Why not me? I know that Jesus is close to your heart. You defended his gentle way of rebellion and rejected my way of resisting. Now I'm indissolubly bound up with him. I keep thinking what that means for me. If he has died in my place, then I am obliged to live for him. Man, that's cool. Now the, he's not sold at that point. The rest of the letter suggests that he's still in for some fighting and pushing back. But something happened on that cross in that day that happened, at least in this story, to Barabbas. I would hope that that happened. We don't know what happened to Barabbas, but one thing we can know for sure, his tomb is occupied. It's probably just dust. I'm sure it's dust by this point, but his tomb is occupied. I, though, would opt for the Jesus who left his tomb vacant. What Jesus Barabbas hoped to accomplish by force paled to what Jesus Christ of Nazareth accomplished through what appeared to be weakness and helplessness, helplessness, powerlessness and defeat. Let's continue on with this story. Let me just point out, it is a special mercy to all of us that God has disclosed to us who is the finer Jesus here. It scares me, and I hope it scared you a little bit to think, would you have cheered for Barabbas? 
It is a special grace and mercy that the Lord has disclosed to us how fine this Jesus is that we worship. So I'm going to continue the story without commentary, beginning in verse 8 through the end there, verse 32. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do to the, do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together a whole battalion. And they clothed him with purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read the King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, there it is, trial number one, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, trial number two, come down from that cross that we may see and believe. I think Mark has delivered for us really one important point from this story. Mark has introduced this concept of kingship. Up to this point, it's been about messiahship. Up to chapter 14, it's been about the Christ and the first words of the book of Mark are opening up as this is the story of Christ, Jesus, the Christ. It becomes a theme throughout uh, leading up to chapter 14, this messiahship and this crisis all hinted at. But at this point, it turns to kingship. And kingship is mentioned all over this passage, beginning in verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Then again in verse 9. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Then in verse 12. What shall I do with the man you call the king of of the Jews began and then in, in continuing on in verse 18 and they began to salute him hail king of the Jews in verse 26 the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews and then again in verse 32 let the Christ the king 
of Israel, come now, come down now from the cross. Man, this is especially developed in verses 16 through 20, where the whole battalion gets together and they do have like this vaudeville version of mocking Jesus, clothing him in purple, putting a crown of thorns on him and mocking him and hailing him as king of the Jews and bowing down to him. Man, it is a heartbreaking message, but Mark does a beautiful thing for us in pointing out Christ as king of the Jews. He does it for his Roman audience. 2,000 years ago, Mark was written to a Roman audience, and he does it for us here in 2020 where we get to see this king on display. However much he was mocked as a king, however much it seemed ridiculous, the whole vaudeville thing in verses 16 through 20, However much it seemed ridiculous by both Jews and Romans and the Romans, Mark does something special for us. Mark shows us that Jesus reigns as king right here on this cross. Man, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, The word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross is vaudeville. That's a joke, a mockery to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Man, this is his most powerful moment here that we're enjoying. A, a king on display. Can you hear it? Can you hear the fact that he had so few words? Can you see that as kingly power? Man, I've considered his kingly power on display in his silence. His silence was deafening. It made him mad. It made Pilate amazed. His kingly silence was deafening, but it was intentional because his very words would have changed the course of the cross. Just his power in his words would have changed the course and the outcome. For his holy mouth said to the ocean or the, the sea, peace be still, and it was like glass. His mouth spoke to people who had leprosy or who were blind or who were lame, and he healed them with his spoken word. His mouth called demons out of people where they were cast out by his spoken word. His mouth was powerful. It cursed a fig tree, and the next day it's dead. His silence was powerful restraint because his words give life. His words shed light. His lights liberate, and at the same time, his words are so exposing, they condemn and they expose. His words heal and they convict all at the same time. Had those things happened, the cross wouldn't have happened. This was powerful, kingly silence. Can you hear it? And can you see it? This was a powerful display of his restraint. He who is the word made flesh had so few verbs. One of our first members at Crosspoint Fellowship years ago was a young gal, a student at AM Commerce named Victoria. Victoria lived in I don't know how many different countries. She spoke a number of different languages. She was Euro world though. She had been exposed to so much of the world, uh, but her, her native tongue was Spanish. And I remember preaching in the book of John where she shared with me one Sunday that the Spanish version of John chapter one, verse one is in the, in the beginning was the verb and the verb was made flesh. 
I love that boy because he's an active word. He is a moving word. Just consider in this occasion, in this event, that he had so few verbs after the arrest. This verb incarnate had so few verbs after the rest. The one with the greatest verbs for those in need. He healed them. He opened the eyes of the blind. He touched them. He had so many powerful, awesome verbs. This one who is himself the creative verb. Hebrews chapter one, verse one tells us that he is the one through whom God created the world. This verb let sinners for a moment have all the verbs. This is powerful, kingly restraint. If you follow this passage and just consider the verbs that were turned over, it will shock you. They laid hands on him. They seized him. They spit on him. They condemned him. They covered his face. They struck him. The guards received him with blows. One passage after another has these terrible verbs in it. They bound him. They led him away. They delivered him up. One passage after another shows him with so few verbs. They scourged him. They delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away. They clothed him. They put those clothes on him. They began to salute him. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him. They mocked him. They stripped him. They put his own clothes on him. They led him out and they crucified him. Man, this verb incarnate gave up all the verbs. There are plenty who saw nothing but death and loss and defeat in this. Nothing more than a mockery of a fake king. But some see right here in and on this cross the power to save. Some see this king enthroned as Christ and king as most powerful. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for this window into the greatness of our king. Lord, we are so thankful for this window into the greatness of Christ as Messiah. Where we enjoy him this morning as having paid a terrible price for us as both king and Messiah. We're praying these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. I would just uh, invite you to take a moment and grab your supper elements. If you uh, would join us in taking the supper, we can uh, just have some, uh, I'll share a thought with you, kind of a devotional thought with you as you grab uh, some elements. We take the supper each week. Remembering the cross, remembering the terrible price paid. But we don't eat it in sadness, ever. We don't eat it in defeat, ever. For we know for this night, he turned over a lot of verbs, but there's a couple of verbs that he didn't turn over. For he rose again and he lives. Let's enjoy him by taking and eating together in faith. Take and eat. Let's take and drink in faith. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I just want to share a couple of announcements with you. Um, first of all, just uh, you're invited to join us at 3 p.m. on Friday. 
for a Good Friday service. It will be brief, but it will be important. I think it is an hour that the, our Lord gave up his spirit where he called out to his father and he breathed his last on the cross at 3 p.m. Uh, 2,000 years ago. And at 3 p.m. this Friday, we will remember that. We will just extinguish this last candle together. I want to invite you also to join our Zoom meetings. Uh, children, uh, youth, uh, the young adults have some Zoom meetings over the course of the week. Adults, life groups. Um, I, I, what I'm finding as we do more and more of these Zoom meetings is that the more you do, the more natural they become. So I invite you to do the work of connecting to the people of God through the uh, virtual uh, means that we have available to us right now. If you're not familiar with those, I want to uh, encourage you to, you can email me or you can email the church office and we will get that information to you. Uh, ben at crosspointfellowship.us. Uh, the other email address you can use is office at crosspointfellowship.us. Either one of those email addresses and we will get the information to you to connect to these mediums and these opportunities to gather with God's people over God's word and in fellowship as best as I read it considering us having the chance to enjoy this together this morning. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. God bless y'all. Have a great week.